Part Two, Chapter Seventeen, of the Tree of Heaven by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part Two, The Vortex, Chapter Seventeen. Another year passed. Francis was afraid for Michael now. Michael was being drawn in. Because of his strange thoughts, he was the one of all her children who had most hidden himself from her, who would perhaps hide himself from her to the very end. Nicholas had settled down. He had left the Morse company and gone into his father's business for a while to see whether he could stand it. John was going into the business too when he left Oxford. John was even looking forward to his partnership in what he called the Pater's Old Tree Game. He said, You wait till I get my hand well in. Won't we make it rip? John was safe. You could depend on him to keep out of trouble. He had no genius for adventure. He would never strike out for himself any strange or dangerous line. He had settled down in Cheltenham. He had settled down at Oxford. And Dorothea had settled down. The Women's Franchise Union was now in the full whirl of its revolution. Under the inspiring leadership of the Blathwaites, it ran riot up and down the country. It smashed windows. It hurled stone ginger-beer bottles into the motor-cars of cabinet ministers. It poured treacle into pillar-boxes. It invaded the House of Commons by the waterway in barges from which women, armed with megaphones, demanded the vote from infamous legislators drinking tea on the terrace. It went up in balloons and showered down propaganda on the city. Now and then, just to show what violence it could accomplish if it liked, it burned down a house or two in a pure and consecrated ecstasy of feminism. It was bringing to perfection its last great tactical maneuver, the massed raid followed by the hunger strike in prison. And it was considering seriously the very painful but possible necessity of interfering with British sport, say the Eton and Harrow match at Lord's, in some drastic and terrifying way that would bring the men of England to their senses. And Dorothea's soul had swung away from the sweep of the whirlwind. It would never suck her in. She worked now in the office of the Social Reform Union and wrote reconstructive articles for the new Commonwealth on economics and the marriage laws. Frances was not afraid for her daughter. She knew that the revolution was all in Dorothea's brain. When she said that Michael was being drawn in, she meant that he was being drawn into the vortex of revolutionary art. And since Frances confused this movement with the movements of Phyllis Desmond, she judged it to be terrible. She understood from Michael that it was the vortex, the only one that really mattered, and the only one that would ever do anything. And Michael was not only in it, he was in it with Lawrence Stephen. Though Frances knew now that Lawrence Stephen had plans for Michael, she did not realize that they depended much more on Michael himself than on him. Stephen had said that if Michael was good enough, he meant to help him. If his poems amounted to anything, he would publish them in his review. If any book of Michael's poems amounted to anything, he would give a whole article to that book in his review. If Michael's prose should ever amount to anything, he would give him regular work on the review. In 1913, Michael Harrison was the most promising of the revolutionary young men who surrounded Lawrence Stephen, and his poems were beginning to appear one after another in the Green Review. He had brought out a volume of his experiments in the spring of that year. They were better than those that Réveillot had approved of two years ago, 
and lawrence stephen had praised them in the green review lawrence stephen was the only editor out of ireland as he said who would have had the courage either to publish them or to praise them and when frances realized michael's dependence on lawrence stephen she was afraid you wouldn't be my dear if you knew larry vera said for frances still refused to recognize the man who had taken ferdinand cameron's place lawrence stephen was one of those nationalist irishmen who love ireland with a passion that satisfies neither the lover nor the beloved it was a pure and holy passion a passion so entirely of the spirit as to be compatible with permanent bodily absence from its object stephen's body had lived at ease in england a country that he declared his spirit hated ever since he had been old enough to choose a habitation for himself he justified his predilection on three grounds ireland had been taken from him ireland had been so ruined and raped by the scotch and the english that nothing but the soul of ireland was left for irishmen to love he could work and fight for ireland better in london than in dublin and again the irishman in england can make havoc in his turn he can harry the english he can spite and irritate and triumph and get his own back in a thousand ways living in england he would be a thorn in england's side and all this meant that there was no place in ireland for a man of his talents and his temperament his enemies called him an opportunist but he was an opportunist gone wrong abandoned to an obstinate idealism one of those damned and solitary souls that only the north of ireland produces in perfection for the protestantism of ulster breeds rebels like no other rebels on earth rebels as strong and obstinate and canny as itself before he was twenty-one stephen had revolted against the material comfort and the spiritual tyranny of his father's house he was the great-grandson of an immigrant lancashire cotton spinner settled in belfast his western irish blood was steeled with this mixture and braced and embittered with the scottish blood of antrim where his people married therefore if he had chosen one career and stuck to it he would have been formidable but one career alone did not suffice for his inexhaustible energies as a fisher of opportunities he drew with too wide a net and in too many waters he had tried parliamentary politics and failed because no party trusted him least of all his own and yet few men were more trustworthy he turned his back on the house of commons and took to journalism as a journalistic politician he ran nationalism for ireland and socialism for england neither nationalists nor socialists believed in him yet few men were more worthy of belief in literature he had distinguished himself as a poet a playwright a novelist and an essayist he did everything so well that he was supposed not to do anything quite well enough because of his politics other men of letters suspected his artistic sincerity yet few artists were more sincere his very distinction was unsatisfying without any of the qualities that make even a minor statesman he was so far contaminated by politics as to be spoiled for the highest purposes of art yet there was no sense in which he had achieved popularity everywhere he went he was an alien and suspected do what he would he fell between two countries in two courses ireland had cast him out and england would none of him he hated catholicism and protestantism alike and protestants and catholics alike disowned him 
to every church and every sect he was a free thinker destitute of all religion yet few men were more religious his enemies called him a turner and a twister yet on any one of his lines no man ever steered a straighter course a capacity for turning and twisting might have saved him it would at any rate have made him more intelligible as it was he presented to two countries the disconcerting spectacle of a many-sided object moving with violence in a dead straight line he moved so fast that to a stationary onlooker he was gone before one angle of him had been apprehended it was for other people to turn and twist if any one of them was to get a complete all-round view of the amazing man but taken all round he passed for a man of hard wit and suspicious brilliance and he belonged to no generation in nineteen thirteen he was not yet forty too old to count among the young men and yet too young for men of his own age so that in all ireland and all england you could not have found a lonelier man the same queer doom pursued him in the most private and sacred relations of his life to all intents and purposes he was married to vera harrison and yet he was not married he was neither bound nor free all this had made him sorrowful and bitter and to add to his sorrowfulness and bitterness he had something of the celt spiritual abhorrence of the flesh and though he loved vera after his manner there were moments when vera's capacity for everlasting passion left him tired and bored and cold all his life his passions had been at the service of ideas all his life he had looked for some great experience some great satisfaction and consummation and he had not found it in nineteen thirteen with half his life behind him the opportunist was still waiting for his supreme opportunity meanwhile his enemies said of him that he snatched but he did not snatch the eyes of his idealism were fixed too steadily on a visionary future he merely tried with a bored and weary gesture to waylay the passing moment while he waited he had put his political failure behind him and said i will be judged as an artist or not at all they judged him accordingly and their judgment was wrong there was not the least resemblance between lawrence stephen as he was in himself and lawrence stephen as he appeared to the generation just behind him to conservatives he passed for the leader of the revolution in contemporary art and yet the revolution in contemporary art was happening without him he was not the primal energy in the movement of the vortex in nineteen thirteen his primal energies were spent and he was trusting to the movement of the vortex to carry him a little farther than he could have gone by his own impetus he was attracted to the young men of the vortex because they were not of the generation that had rejected him and because he hoped thus to prolong indefinitely his own youth they were attracted to him because of his solitary distinction his comparative poverty and his unpopularity a prosperous well-established stephen would have revolted them he gave the revolutionaries the shelter of his review the support of his name and the benefit of his bored and wearied criticism they brought him in return a certain homage founded on his admirable appreciation of their merits and tempered by their sense of his dealings with the past they abominated stephen is a bigot said young morton ellis he believes in swinburne stephen smiled at him in bored and weary tolerance he believed in too many things for his peace of mind 
he knew that the young men distrusted him because of his beliefs and because of his dealings with the past because he refused to destroy the old gods when he made place for the new young morton ellis lay stretched out at his ease on the couch in stephen's study he blinked and twitched as he looked up at his host with half irritated half affable affection the young men came and went at their ease in and out of that house in st john's wood which lawrence stephen shared with vera harrison they were at home there their books stood in his bookcase they laid their manuscripts on his writing-table and left them there they claimed his empty spaces for the hanging of their pictures yet unsold every friday evening they met together in the long low room at the top of the house and they talked every friday evening michael left his father's house to meet them there and to listen and to talk to-night round and about morton ellis the young poet were austin mitchell the young painter and paul monier owen the young sculptor and george wadham the last and youngest of morton ellis's disciples lawrence stephen stood among them like an austere guest in some rendezvous of violent youth or like the priest of some romantic religion that he has blasphemed yet not quite abjured he was lean and dark and shaven his black hair hung forward in two masses smooth and straight and square he had sorrowful bitter eyes and a bitter sorrowful mouth the long irish upper lip fine and hard drawn while the lower lip quivered incongruously pouted and protested and recanted was sceptical and sensitive and tender his short high nose had wide yet fastidious nostrils it was at this figure that morton ellis continued to gaze with affability and irritation it was this figure that vera's eyes followed with anxious restless passion as if she felt that at any moment he might escape her might be off god knew where lawrence stephen was ill at ease in that house and in the presence of his mistress and his friends i believe in the past he said because i believe in the future i want continuity therefore i believe in swinburne and i believe in browning and in tennyson and wordsworth i believe in keats and shelley and in milton but i do not believe any more than you do in their imitators i believe in destroying their imitators i do not believe in destroying them you can't destroy their imitators unless you destroy them they breed the disgusting parasites their memories harbour them like a stinking suit of old clothes they must be scrapped and burned if we're to get rid of the stink art has got to be made young and new and clean there isn't any disinfectant that'll do the trick so long as old masters are kowtowed to as masters people will go on imitating them when a poet ceases to be a poet and becomes a centre of corruption he must go michael said how about us when people imitate us have we got to go morton ellis looked at him and blinked no he said no we haven't got to go i don't see how you get out of it i get out of it by doing things that can't be imitated there was a silence in which everybody thought of mr george wadham it made mr wadham so uncomfortable that he had to break it i say how about shakespeare he said well nobody so far has imitated shakespeare any more than they have succeeded in imitating me there was another silence while everybody thought of morton ellis as the imitator of every poetic form under the sun except the forms adopted by his contemporaries it's all very well ellis said stephen 
but you aren't the holy ghost coming down out of heaven we can trace your sources my dear stephen i never said i was the holy ghost nobody ever does come down out of heaven you can trace my sources thank god because they're clean i haven't gone into every stream that swine like blank and blank and blank and blank and blank he named five contemporary distinctions have made filthy with their paddling he went on the very damnable question that you've raised harrison is absurd you believe in the revolution well then supposing the revolution's coming you needn't suppose it because it's come we are the revolution the revolution means that we've made a clean sweep of the past in the future no artist will want to imitate anybody no artist will be allowed to exist unless he's prepared to be buried alive or burned alive rather than corrupt the younger generation with the processes and the products of his own beastly dissolution that's why violence is right o violenza sorghi balena in questo cielo saguigno stupra le albe e rompi come incendio nei vesperi fa di tutto il sereno una tempesta fa di tutta la vita una battaglia fa con tutte le anime un odio solo there's no special holiness in violence violence is right because it's necessary you mean it's necessary because it's right austin mitchell spoke he was a sallow youth with a broad flat-featured british face but he had achieved an appearance of great strangeness and distinction by letting his hay-coloured hair grow long and cultivating two beards instead of one violence he continued is not a means it's an end energy must be got for its own sake if you want to generate more energy instead of standing still the difference between pastism and futurism is the difference between statics and dynamics futurist art is simply art that has gone on that has left off being static and become dynamic it expresses movement owen will tell you better than i can why it expresses movement a light darted from the corner of the room where paul monier owen had curled himself up his eyes flashed like the eyes of a young wild animal roused in its lair paul monier owen was dark and soft and supple at a little distance he had the clumsy grace and velvet innocence of a black panther half cub half grown the tips of his ears the corners of his prominent eyes his eyebrows and his long nostrils tilted slightly upwards and backwards under his slender mournful nose his restless smile showed the white teeth of a young animal above this primitive savage base of features that responded incessantly to any childish provocation the intelligence of monier owen watched in his calm and beautiful forehead and in his eyes he said it expresses movement because it presents objects directly as cutting across many planes to do this you have to break up objects into the lines and masses that compose them and project those lines and masses into space on any curve at any angle according to the planes you mean them to cross otherwise the movements you mean them to express the more planes intersected the more movement you get by decomposing figures you compose movements by decomposing groups of figures you compose groups of movements nothing but a cinema can represent objects as intact and as at the same time moving and even the cinema only does this by a series of decompositions so minute as to escape the eye 
you want to draw a battle piece or the traffic at hyde park corner it can't be done unless you break up your objects as mitchell breaks them up you want to carve figures in the round wrestling or dancing it can't be done unless you dislocate their lines and masses as i dislocate them so as to throw them all at once into those planes that the intact body could only have traversed one after another in a given time by taking time into account as well as space we produce rhythm i know what you're going to say stephen the dancing fawn and the frieze of the parthenon express movements but they do nothing of the sort they express movements arrested at a certain point they are supposed to represent nature but they do not even do that because arrested motion is a contradiction in terms and because the point of arrest is an artificial and arbitrary thing your medium limits you you have to choose between the intact body which is stationary and the broken and projected bodies which are in movement that is why we destroy or suppress symmetry in the figure and in design because symmetry is perfect balance which is immobility if i wanted to present perfect rest i should do it by an absolute symmetry and there's more in it than that said austin mitchell we're out against the damnable affectations of naturalism and humanism if i draw a perfect likeness of a fat pink woman i've got a fat pink woman and nothing else but a fat pink woman and a fat pink woman is a work of nature not a work of art and i'm lying i'm presenting as a reality what is only an appearance the better the likeness the bigger the lie but movement and rhythm are realities not appearances when i present rhythm and movement i've done something i've made reality appear he went on to unfold a scheme for restoring vigour to the exhausted language by destroying its articulations these he declared to be purely arbitrary therefore fatal to the development of a spontaneous and individual style by breaking up the rigid ties of syntax you do more than create new forms of prose moving in perfect freedom you deliver the creative spirit itself from the abominable contact with dead ideas association fixed and eternalized by the structure of the language is the tyranny that keeps down the live idea we've got to restore the innocence of memory as gauguin restored the innocence of the eye michael noticed that the talk was not always sustained at this constructive level and to-night towards twelve o'clock it dropped and broke in a welter of vituperation it was first a frenzied assault on the old masters a storming of immortal strongholds a tearing and scattering of the wing feathers of archangels then from this high adventure it sank to a perfunctory skirmishing among living eminences over forty judged by reason of their age to be too contemptible for an attack in force it rallied again to a bombing and blasting of minute ineptitudes the slaughter of swine like blank and blank and blank and blank and blank and ended in a furious pursuit of a volatile young poet edward rivers who had escaped by sheer levity from the tug of the vortex and was setting up a small swirl of his own michael was with the revolutionary's heart and soul he believed in morton ellis and austin mitchell and monier owen even more than he believed in lawrence stephen and almost as much as he believed in jules revelot they stood for all the realities and all the ideas and all the accomplishments to which he himself was devoted he had no sort of qualms about the wholesale slaughter of the inefficient 
but to-night as he listened to these voices he felt again his old horror of the collective soul the voices spoke with a terrible unanimity the vortex the vortex was like the little vortex of school the young men ellis and mitchell and monier owen belonged to a herd like the school herd hunting together crying together saying the same thing their very revolt against the old masters was a collective and not an individual revolt their chase was hottest when their quarry was one of the pack who had broken through and got away they hated the fugitive solitary private soul and yet it was only as private souls that ellis and mitchell and monier owen counted each by himself did good things each if he had the courage to break loose and go by himself might do a great thing some day even george wadham might do something if he could get away from ellis and the rest edward rivers had had courage michael thought it's rivers now it'll be my turn next but he had a great longing to break loose and get away he thought i don't know where they're all going to end they think they're beginning something tremendous but i can't see what's to come of it and i don't see how they can go on like that forever i can't see what's coming yet something must come they can't be the end he thought their movement is only a small swirl in an immense vortex it may suck them all down but it will clear the air they will have helped to clear it he thought of himself going on free from the whirl of the vortex and of his work as enduring standing clear and hard in the clean air end of chapter seventeen end of part two the vortex recording by expatriate in bangor maine